A note to our listeners. We recorded this podcast in March when the medical community knew much less about COVID-19. We apologize if some of the information appears dated. Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Dr. Scott Kaiser is a rare breed, and he shouldn't be. He's a geriatrician. There are only 7,000 of them in the U.S., even though 10,000 Americans are turning 65 every day. Part of the reason? Gerontology typically doesn't pay as well as other specialties, so it often attracts people who are purely committed to the practice, like Dr. Kaiser. He loves his work because there's so much he can do for his patients, and so much they can do for themselves. Want to remain healthy in brain and body for years to come? Here are the truly magic bullets. Sleep, exercise, a good diet, an active social life, creativity, a strong sense of purpose, and good primary care. Take diet. When you're in the produce aisle, you're basically hunting for your medicine, Dr. Kaiser says. Green leafy vegetables have compounds that protect them from sun damage as they grow. They protect us as we age, too. Exercise? The only thing better than a kale salad for aging might be a vigorous dance class, he says. It challenges us mentally and physically. Exercise is the closest thing we have to a miracle drug for brain health, Dr. Kaiser says. It's unbelievable. Have a listen to Dr. Kaiser and you might just get excited about aging, rather than dreading it. That's the last magic bullet. A positive attitude about getting older. Our episode with Dr. Kaiser will almost certainly help with that. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. So you're a geriatrician. Correct. And you specialize in... Cognitive health. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, so first of all, a geriatrician, I'm, I'm a rare, rare breed right here, you know, so there are less than 7,000 of us in the entire United States, which is unbelievable when you consider the fact that 10,000 people are turning 65 every day, right? We have an aging population uh, of an unprecedented magnitude, but very few physicians who specialize in geriatric medicine. So what that means is you know, went to medical school. Uh, I trained in family medicine. Geriatricians train in either internal medicine or family medicine. So I trained in family medicine for three years and then did a geriatric medicine fellowship after that, where I spent a number of years really focusing on the needs of older patients, understanding everything from how the physiology changes in the body with time uh, to understanding how different medications might impact somebody differently over time, uh, and understanding some basic geriatric syndromes, uh, things that older people are at greater risk for, whether it be falls or incontinence or memory problems. So now if you come to memory problems, of course, that's where I'm most focused now, that's cognitive health. So while I have training and expertise in all of geriatric medicine, my practice now is focused on helping people with cognitive health issues. Why aren't there more geriatricians? It's an interesting question, uh, and a, there is no simple answer, but I can tell you a number of factors that certainly contribute to it. For one, uh, it's the only specialty in medicine where in doing a fellowship and doing more training, your average salary goes down. 
More really? training for less pay. Not really a very no. enticing, inviting proposition when you're leaving medical school with a mountain of debt, right? To think, okay, great, I, I'd like to, I'd like to make less money. <laughs> um, but if you think about it, you know, so most of uh, our patients have Medicare with a uh, lower relative payment amount for a longer amount of time typically needed for a more complicated patient. So if you're getting paid sort of by widgets, right, you're going to produce less widgets because it takes more time. Sure. And uh, the per unit cost is lower. And also we don't do any procedure, right? So if you, I mean, we remove earwax, you know, but you don't get paid a lot for that. Um, but so if you go into gastroenterology and you get trained to do colonoscopies, that's a procedure with a higher reimbursement or payment amount. Um, so that's a huge factor, the economics factor. Um, I think there's also a lot of just, and it might be rooted in ageism, but a lot of discouragement um, for a number of reasons. I, I remember mentors who were incredible telling me, oh, why would you want to do that? Older people, they take so long and they smell or God, they're <laughs> so annoying, you know, and oh, you got to deal with families. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff where people just kind of think, oh, I don't want to deal with older people or, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, the diagnosis has already been made. You're just kind of managing, supporting. I mean, there's all sorts of negative messages that, in my experience, couldn't be further from the truth in terms of the true joy and value of, uh, of practicing geriatric medicine. And what's interesting is once people get over those barriers um, and go into geriatric medicine, it's sort of a self-selected group, uh, you find some commonalities in geriatricians that, you know, they had older people early in their life who were very influential, mm. grandparents, things like that. Uh, they, they like people and like stories. We're very humanistic. Uh, we're not a very aggressive bunch in terms of lobbying and stuff because we kind of just like people and like life and uh, are a little intellectual, I guess. But so I think that, uh, and, and then there's the financial thing that we laugh at geriatric medicine conferences about the day that will come that we look at all these upstarts who are just in it for the money, right? Because obviously, yes, in a, in a, in a fee for service system where you get paid for these units of service delivery, it's not a good profit, profitable kind of model. But as, as healthcare shifts to something that's value-based, value-based care, this was a big part of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right, is the idea that because we have a healthcare system that's too expensive, that isn't delivering the outcomes it should, and that isn't, people are having a negative experience uh, of healthcare, because of those problems, we should have incentives, drivers that actually pay for quality of care, quality of experience, and, and good, you know, good outcomes and contained costs. Yes. So that's value-based care. And in a value-based care model, whether it proves to be the case or not, I would argue that geriatricians have a, a perspective, an approach, an expertise that is extremely valuable. So I think that um, payment and, and economic opportunity in geriatric medicine will actually improve uh, but it'll be interesting to see then what happens in terms of 
because uh, we actually have training spots in geriatric medicine that go unfilled. So we have capacity to train more. We should be training more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are totally unprepared. We have, as I said, 10,000 people turning 65 every day. We are approaching the first time in human history where we have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 18, right? Because people, mm -hmm. we had a 30-year gain in life expectancy over the last century. Unprecedented in human history. I mean, it's unbelievable. So living longer, more of them because of the baby boomers, less young people to balance it out because of declining fertility rates. So we have this inversion of the population pyramid, this aging population, and we don't have geriatric medicine doctors. There's special training for nurses in geriatric medicine. We don't have enough people who have that training. There's special training for social workers in geriatrics. We don't have enough of people. I mean, throughout the system, this has been well-documented with reports and studies for decades now that we are completely unprepared for something that is the most obvious thing. There's so much uncertainty in the world. You never know what's coming around the corner. But one of the things that's most certain is demographics. Yes. You can count yes. on it. You can look at tables and you know, you know, this is what it's going to be. It's not hard to forecast out. So we know this is happening. We know this is coming. And yet, yeah, we're, we're unprepared. You know, it's funny you mention that now because we're sitting here in the midst of a what's now being called a pandemic uh -huh. with COVID-19. Yeah. And if what we're reading right now is that it affects older people far more than younger people. Is this, might this be um, a moment of reckoning in this, in this sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. So when I was thinking, I was thinking in the back of my mind, uh, as we're, as I was talking about demographic certainty, that certainly there are things that can throw a wrench in it. Uh, that said, uh, even with a pandemic, I still think there's gonna, certainty that we're going to have this inversion of the population pyramid. Uh, with more older people than young people. But what are we learning in terms of facing COVID-19? Um, that yes, when you have more older people, inevitably older people are going to be more vulnerable to infectious disease, right? Uh, and that is certainly the case more than usual with this particular virus, it appears. Mm, yeah. It's early and we're still lacking information. The other thing is that it this is a, a virus that impacts people with chronic conditions. Two out of three people over the age of 65 have multiple chronic conditions. So that's like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, COPD, or other respiratory lung problems. Two thirds of people over 65 have more than one of those to start with. Now, again, I don't want to send the wrong message because you can't just think age is just a number, right? So there are a lot of older people who are very healthy. Sure. Right. But when we're thinking at a population level, what, what we're starting to talk about here, a wake up call is that when you have a population that's top heavy with a lot of people who are older, a lot of people with chronic conditions, you need to start investing in a system that's prepared to care for those people. And something like a pandemic, a respiratory uh, viral pandemic, reveals the, the cracks in the system, the shortcomings, the lack of having, you know, 
uh, reserve of certain supportive services and equipment that's needed. Uh, the, rat, the lack of kind of community resources that are needed, you know, up front. I mean, we'll come full circle on this, but because it, it's a it's a full spectrum thing. We can focus specifically on how to deal with a viral pandemic, but at the same time, what I'm living with every day is that every 20 minutes, an older American dies from injuries related to a fall. Wow, every 20 minutes. So on the one hand, what we need to be thinking about is the impact of chronic condi- chronic conditions and the impact of uh, lack of social supports and services. In the case of falls, we could prevent so many of those falls if people had access to programs that we know there are classes you can take that we know reduce your risk of falling. Uh, there are exercise programs that you can do that we know reduce your risk of falling. There are interventions you could do in terms of looking at what kind of medication somebody's on and taking them off unnecessary high-risk medications. There are things you can do in terms of uh, altering the home environment, you know, getting certain rugs out of the way, uh, trip, throw, um, trip hazard type things. Sure. I mean, there's so much grab bars. So that's sort of what we live with every day. Then you have something comes along where you have this viral uh, epidemic or pandemic, depending on where we are in it, right? And so now you have something where you have older people who are the most vulnerable. Uh, immune system might not be as efficient and as effective. And again, the chronic conditions, so they're more likely to potentially get it. And then should they contract the illness, more likely to suffer severe consequences. Because why are people dying when they have COVID-19? I mean, a lot of people seem to be getting through it and being nearly asymptomatic or maybe just a mild cold. Right. But the people who get really sick, uh, what happens is uh, the virus replicates, replicates, takes over uh, certain systems and you start having more and more respiratory issues. And that leads to something called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. where your lungs are failing and you need a ventilator to support, right? So the person who's most likely, who's in a high risk group would be an older person, older person with multiple chronic conditions. Of course. So you need to be prepared for that rescue care, have ventilators, hospital beds, but much more importantly, up front, these are the people, my patients, the people that I care for, are the ones who need to know that, hey, when there's something here in terms of every cold and flu season, we should be washing our hands. We should be careful in terms of touching certain surfaces. We should always, every cold and flu season, I mean, this is sort of like, okay, this is where we should live all the time. Was there an older adult in your life? Yeah, I mean, I think several, but the the, the most impactful, and, and I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but um, my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with her uh, when my mom was, uh, my mom was in school, uh, my grandmother uh, stepped up and, you know, spent a lot of time with her. But then particularly when I was a little older, my grandmother had MS and she became more and more uh, frail. Um, 
I wouldn't say frail, actually. She, she had a lot of uh, limitations from the MS and needed more and more help. And um, it was a, that was a lot sort of on my grandfather as well. And so in summer times, it was a great thing for me to be able to kind of help my grandmother, you know, get in and out of bed for her swimming was critical mm. swimming in cold water she swore by it so getting her to the pool helping her get in the pool um in the, you know now i know as a geriatrician how important social connection is and i guess she intuitively knew so i would get her in the car and take her to bridge games and to go um she had friends that she would read books and be in her uh, book club with so i mean to me, that time with my grandmother, uh, particularly in the summers, uh, and my grandmother was an artist and she was a painter, and you and know. Where was this? Was this? Yeah, so she was from Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I just that that had a huge impact, and it's it's not something that I thought about when I was going into geriatrics, but it's something that, in retrospect, I realized had a big impact. What I did think about when I was picking geriatrics was actually my grandfather, my her husband, my f- mother's father, right? So uh, I was in residency in family medicine, and uh, my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease, and he was declining, uh, and he had an issue that... It was sort of unclear what was going on, and one time he, he ended up being hospitalized. And so he was hospitalized. He was actually hospitalized in Boston, and that's where I was doing my training. And he was in the hospital, and something that happened that's not uncommon with people who have dementia who are hospitalized, he got really confused, mm. and he ended up developing delirium, right? And so when he was in the hospital and he was delirious, he was... Uh, pulling out his tubes, his IV line, and then they ended up actually restraining him, uh, saying that shouldn't happen, but happens all the time in hospitals. <sighs> and then what happened is it was sort of this disaster that was snowballing. We had these, all these specialists coming, saying, oh, we'll do this test, we'll do that. Nobody kind of quarterbacking it. Finally, somebody called the geriatric medicine consult, and the geriatric medicine team came in, and they said, hey, guys, this is a person with dementia. He's delirious. Let's take the restraints off. Let's take this medication away. Let's do this intervention. And he, they got everything calmed down. Then they started talking to the other specialists. They said to the gastroenterologist, whoa, 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 why do you want to do this colonoscopy? What are we trying to achieve? What, what, have you talked to the patient's family about what their goals are? You know, what, what, are we, what are we hoping to learn by this? And if we were able to find this, what would we do about it? So having these goals of care conversations, um, it was a real revelation to me. It was like, wow. And it, it, it's just so happened that this was at, a, at Beth Israel Hospital, which is where the Harvard Geriatrics Fellowship is. And one of my mentors in family medicine, a senior resident who really helped me when I was an intern, she had gone on to train there and she kept saying, Scott, you should do geriatric medicine. It would be great. You know, you, you have a way with your older patients yeah, and I can tell you would love this. You know, you should do this. And I was kind of on the fence. I was like, well, I don't know. I just didn't, until I was in that situation with my grandfather, 
who is a huge role in my life. He, he's a huge part of why I went into medicine. He was a physician, the only physician in the family. He was okay. a surgeon. And, uh, and in fact, I, I thought for a while I wanted to do surgery, and a lot of it was just out of my admiration and respect for him and seeing the impact that he had in people's lives. I mean, when he walked around Pittsburgh, people all knew, oh my gosh, he saved my, he saved my dad's life. He saved my brother's life, you know. It, and just being a pillar of the community like that. And so here he is, mm. different stage in his life, with Alzheimer's, but living a good quality of life, but then hospitalized, and this cascade of negative events with healthcare doing what healthcare typically does and not really stepping back. And the geriatricians came in and had this broader perspective and were able to really right the ship and put things back on a course where we could then get the best out of what the hospital and great diagnostics and great specialists had to oh, offer, yeah. but not at the expense of what really mattered in terms of you know, his well-being and just quality of life. And so they came in, and, and it was so striking to me that nobody knew what delirium was and nobody knew what to yeah. call it. And, and all of our instincts as a healthcare system in terms of how to respond to it were all wrong. And they came in, and people who, again, there's a, there's a long history of geriatricians who have been incredible health services researchers and have studied delirium in the hospital and created things like the Hospital Elder Life Program that shows that if you actually focus on sleep when older people are in the hospital and avoiding interruptions at night and you try not to give sleep aid medicines like Ambien and instead give foot rubs and chamomile mm. tea and have volunteers to help with these things. If you reorient people to where they are and you know put a calendar so that they know what the date is and you can actually help people not become delirious. But it was just crazy that like I didn't know anything about steps. this. Yeah. Nobody clearly Nobody in knew. this Harvard hospital knew about it until the geriatricians came in and they're like, hey, this so I mean, that was something where, you know, a person who had been very important to me ended up being very important in another way because it dramatically altered the course of my life because then I went into geriatric medicine. I became one of those fellows who was helping other people's loved ones, uh, helping other patients in the hospital go through the same thing. And we had a, a service where that's all we did for months was help respond to delirium calls. Uh, we had a service for months where all we did was help people with dementia in the hospital uh, go through different things. And, and so that's, you know, what I do now. And so he helped determine your, the course of your life all the way, you know, all the way through his. Oh, until, uh, till the very last breath of the end of his life, uh, because he, um, was able to pass away at home with hospice with family members around and his end of life um, is something that is a, is something that stuck with me you know you never want to impose on anybody else everybody should have a right to be able to have the best chance to end for their life to end however they feel some people prefer not me but would prefer to die in a hospital or whatever people should have you know as much say in it but 
his model of how to have peacefully and um, in a fulfilled way transition into whatever's next um, is a model that stays with me every single day of my life. So down to his very last breath and continuing until now, he's a huge influence on me. Let's talk about your more routine yeah. day job now, about sure. um, cognitive uh, geriatric health. What? So tell me what that what your what what your practice looks like, in because that's most of what you do. Sure. So let's talk about the what what sort of things you see there yeah. in your patient population. Well, so I mean, everybody's concerned as they get older that they're losing their memory, and so. Um, some of that concern is justified and some of it is not. So let's start with the thing that everybody's scared of, right? Alzheimer's disease. So it's true, uh, over 5 million people are currently living with Alzheimer's disease in the United States. So this is something that there impacts a lot of people. So uh, one of the things that I do as a geriatrician focusing on cognitive health is I help care for people who are living with Alzheimer's or other types of dementia. So Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia, but there are other types as well. There's vascular dementia, there's Lewy body dementia, some kind of ones that aren't as much household names like progressive supranuclear palsy yeah. or multiple system atrophy. Um, but so... But Alzheimer's is the, is what percentage of, case, of dementia cases are Alzheimer's? Like 60? I don't have the percentage offhand, but it's the vast majority. majority. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. why it gets the... Yeah. Although kind of the whole concept of what's Alzheimer's and what isn't and the pathologic classification, I mean, it's all changing before our very it, eyes. So there's a lot of uncertainty because there's sort of, there's new categories like something called late where uh, we could go and we'll get back to that okay. about how people... Uh, the hallmark, the pathologic hallmark of Alzheimer's, the reason it has its name is Dr. Alzheimer's saw these plaques and tangles under a microscope uh, looking at brains post-mortem. So these beta amyloid um, and tau plaques and tangles, right? So what's really confusing is you have people who've got a lot of beta amyloid and they have no symptoms. And then you've got people who act like they have Alzheimer's, but don't have the plaques and tangles. So it's all changing before our very eyes, yeah, right? Yeah. But so Alzheimer's looks a certain way pathologically, but also acts a certain way in terms of the, the disease course and whatnot. And it is the most common form of dementia, right? So one of the things I do is just help support people to to be able to to maintain as, as good a function and do as well as possible who are living with those conditions. And then there's also sorting out kind of which, which one is it. Um, some diagnostic work to sort out, well, what condition is it likely or is it a mix of conditions so that we could, again, better understand how to support somebody living with it. So that's on one end. Okay. But on the other end, as I said, everybody's worried about it, right? So... Uh, a lot of what I do is assess people's cognition, memory being one part of cognition. There's lots of things okay, that right. go into thinking, right? So assess people's cognition to determine, is it 
uh, abnormal? Is there something, you know, if you're worried that you're losing your keys all the time, <laughs> there's a couple that I could just say, oh, so what? Big deal. You're, or let's alternatively, we could really look into it and see, is this a symptom of a bigger problem or is it okay? Right. So those are to the two ends of the spectrum of helping care for people who have known dementia and trying to figure out how to optimize, maybe even improve their brain health to some degree. And then uh, early on trying to help people figure out if they're having cognitive issues, um, are they normal or not? And then even before that, working with everybody to try and maintain good brain health. So that's the whole spectrum the, okay. and everything in between. On the one end, people living with dementia, on the other hand, people who are just trying to be proactive about keeping their brain healthy. Let's let's talk about the proactive things. Sure. Um, what what do you do there? Yeah. So first of all, it's you know people associate losing memory, cognitive decline with aging, and just think, oh, it's a normal oh, it's, part yeah, of aging. It's, it's a it's yeah. It's, but it's not. It's not. Okay. It doesn't have to be i know people all you need to know is you know one person who's 110 who's sharp as a tack yeah and somebody who's 40 who's you know forgetting stuff all the time to go to to sort of make you question your assumptions about right so there is statistically some cognitive decline with age and then there's a normal spectrum a normal range for that and that would just be you know normal aging Okay. Right. But within that, there's a whole range. Okay. So the question is, how do you become the person who's on that high end of the range who's going to be 100 and have no cognitive issues because it's totally normal and possible, right? So, so what do you do? There's basically uh, no one answer, one thing to do. You'll often see on late night TV or, you know, in some back of some magazine, one supplement you could take or one exercise you could do or one thing you can put on your head that's going to be. There isn't one thing. Okay. There could be and that would be great for the inventor of that one thing and that will be great for all of us. But I don't think it'll ever be one thing. I think it's a multifaceted, multimodal approach that works. So of what we know that works now, the foundation of the pyramid really starts with good, basic, fundamental health, okay? So let's talk about basic, fundamental, good health, right? So one, you wanna make sure that you have good primary medical care because there are things that we can do that we know are good for our hearts, for so many parts of our body, that are good for our brains. For example, keeping your blood pressure under control. Okay. Right? And that can be done through diet and lifestyle or potentially through medication. But we know that longstanding, uncontrolled, high blood pressure damages our brains over it time. Does. Absolutely. Just, uh, yeah. is it worth talking about the physio why that is physiologically or is it complex? I think it's complex, but I think we can come back to that. Okay. I think there's so much to cover just yeah, sure, on sure. the fundamentals. But right? suffice it to say that yeah. high blood pressure, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, going to regular primary care to make sure blood pressure, cholesterol, certain fundamental 
cardiovascular risk factors are under control, right? So that's the doctor part. And then I don't like to, I, I'm sorry I started with the doctor part because it seems kind of no, self-centered, no, you know. No, I don't fine. think doctors are that important. <laughs> They're not. The doctors aren't that important. So that's, okay, so good primary care. And by the way, while you're there, get your flu shot, you know, and so that's good, sure. yeah, good that's fundamental good. primary care, right? Then there's the basics like, you didn't need to go to medical school. Um, your mom or your grandma could have told you this, some common common sense stuff that's really good, like eating a healthy diet. Now I start kind of joking with that, that it's common sense, but first of all, common sense isn't common. And then what is a healthy diet, right? And the other thing is that I pause here is that it's so fundamental. It's, it's unbelievable the power that our diet can play in either helping maintain good brain health or in being extremely toxic and deleterious damaging to our brain health. So diet is like huge. Okay. I, so some, some doctors think of, uh, they call it the pharmacy, right? With an F like pharmacy, mm. right? Because the idea is, you know, when you're in your produce aisle, you're basically like hunting for your medicine, right? <laughs> because if you think about what's a brain healthy diet, there is something called the mind diet, which is one example of a diet that has been shown to have benefit for brain health. What's the, what are the basics of that? Yeah. So it's basically a Mediterranean diet meeting a DASH diet, which is a, a diet targeting low uh, targeting blood pressure control. They made this thing, the mind diet. So the basics of the mind diet, I love that it has the two fundamental food groups are vegetables and vegetables. Okay. <laughs> so one is green leafy vegetables. They get a category of their own. They're that important. And I literally, I go through my day and I encourage my patients to go through the day to challenge ourselves. How many green leafy vegetables could we take in today you know did i kale. get my kale uh and and Charm. how many green leafy vegetables can i familiarize myself and introduce into my diet kale shard swiss shard collard greens beet greens romaine arugula yep. you know and it's just like every time you go to the store can you introduce yourself to a new beet green a new uh green leafy vegetable yeah. right so green leafy vegetables are so important. They get a category of their own. And it's important to understand some of the reasons why we think they're so good when you go into the other vegetable category. And um, one of the things is that they have all these phytonutrients, right? So they have all these plant chemicals that, again, are medicine. And what's amazing about our bodies and nature is that they're medicines in their most available form. No matter what we do when we process them and make them into supplements, they're never as effective as when you get it from eating it from the plant, right? Uh, it's just unbelievable that, you know, that's how our bodies best absorb these compounds. But you have things like flavanols um, mm. that are these amazing compounds that the main role they play in a plant is protecting it from the damage from the sun. Okay. So the sun, uh, it, it causes oxidative stress 
right? So there are these damaging free radicals and these compounds help scavenge the free radicals. So just like they protect the plants from that damage to the sun, they protect our cells. Um, it, it's just unbelievable how that works. So, yeah. so vegetables, green leafy vegetables being a category of their own, then other vegetables. And within that, again, there are some really great ones that have a lot of these compounds. There are these antioxidant rich foods like blueberries. Yeah. Blueberries are like a miracle food, <laughs> miracle drug for the brain. Really incredible. Uh, you should have, you know, some blueberries and other berries in your diet. And there's some fruits and vegetables that, because um, I guess that's a fruit and vegetable, some sure. fruits and vegetables that maybe not so good, uh, like a banana. It's just very sugary. Sugary, lots of sugar. Lots of starch. Every food has a glycemic index and that. So, so green leafy vegetables, fruits and vegetables, and then there are other components of it that in terms of like certain types of fish where you can get a lot of omega-3s like with salmon, but you want to make sure that you're not having fish that's too big, where it's at the top oh, in the food chain gathering. and it's accumulating toxins yeah. and mercury is, is the one of the cardinal ones, but other toxins as well. Um, and so forth. So, so healthy diet. Again, we could we'll sure. talk yeah. again another time about, yeah, about and there's that. so much to read and I'm not an expert, but it's, it's really interesting um, that, you know, I'll have a conversation with a patient and we'll talk about the value of tea, you know, and why maybe start drinking green tea. And it, it's, it's comes as a real revelation and surprise to people. And so you've got, you know, diet and then exercise exercise is the closest thing we have to a miracle drug for brain health. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable. We've been discussing this with some of your colleagues. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, people ask me what kind and, you know, I think it's whatever kind you'll do, but there are certainly <laughs> con there are certain types of exercise that are fundamental, making sure you have enough aerobic exercise, but you also want strength exercise. But what seems to be the most exciting including based on some research that we've done as a group, is, are the exercises that combine physical and cognitive challenges. Okay. Yeah. So that's, again, there's some high-tech ways to achieve that, but my good old-fashioned way is something like dance or martial arts. Okay. Or, or surfing. So you right? don't have to so, do a crossword puzzle on an elliptical machine. No, no. no. Okay. And in fact, <laughs> I, I mean, you can, and that's a way to do it. In one of our studies, we had people doing memory training while they were on exercise bikes. Okay. And it was better than even doing the, the things right after one another. Doing them at the same time had more positive impact on memory. But I think that exercise can be a real important time to restore and rejuvenate and 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 to have some kind of mindfulness as well mm. so i don't know about necessarily doing something where you're distracting yourself or focused on i think it's good to be focused on what you're doing as well which is why i love the potential of something like dance where you're learning new routine you're taking information in you're responding to the information you're expressing yourself you're connecting with another person mm. you're balancing you're moving through space I mean, there's just so That's, much yeah. that goes into it. It's perfect. Yeah, there's so much that goes so into it. And it's about, fun. Yeah. So you're like releasing all sorts of feel-good 
uh, hormones as well. So are you talking about like learning new dance steps and, and taking dance classes and that sort of thing? Sure. All yeah. of it, all yeah. of the above. Yeah. 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 I think dance in many forms is an has amazing potential for brain health. Okay. And the same thing, that's why I said martial arts is an example where you have to engage different parts of your of your brain, you know, the brain in terms of remembering things, balancing, uh, proprioception. Yeah. Proprioception, everything. So that's a, and getting a workout, you know, where you're getting your blood pumping, you're breaking a sweat because the, the guidelines are to get enough moderately vigorous aerobic exercise. So what's moderately vigorous. I mean, that means you have to be, uh, that there's something called the talk test where if you can carry on a full conversation, like clearly right now sitting here, I'm not getting enough, I'm not getting moderately vigorous exercise. But if you're going so hard that mm. you can't even get a word out, I mean, you, that's harder than, than what we're talking about. Moderately vigorous means, you know, whew, you know, you get going and you can, you know, you carry on a conversation, but you, it's a little restricted. So, uh, that's how you that's can kind of know. You want to okay. get enough of that, at least 30 minutes of that every day. We had primary care, diet, exercise. Again, we're kind of hitting a real good foundational health pyramid. These are pillars, fundamentals. So the other pillar that I think about that I think is all too often overlooked and might end up being one of the most impactful areas. And it's something where with patient time and time again, I'm able to help make a huge difference in people's lives by exploring this area. Sleep. Yeah. Sleep. Sleep is the, the new, new thing. Yeah. As it should be. As it should be. It's okay. overdue Let's... because our sleep hygiene sucks as a, as a society. As a world. I mean, it's just terrible. <laughs> and it's only getting worse with these alerts oh. and interruptions and blue light everywhere of screens. You know, we have screens everywhere and, and in every part of our lives. Yeah. So it's really, um, it's not surprising to me. And then, you know, if you're working, all the pressure of, to respond to things all the time that we don't have downtime. And so there are just so many things that contribute to poor sleep. So I think we have a... Uh, poor sleep uh, epidemic culture and culture yeah yeah so sleep is critical for brain health um, so let's look at that let's br break that down a little bit on the one hand you just want to make sure that you are getting enough sleep and uh, whether that's kind of the average eight hours uh, but that you wake up and you're feeling rested and that it's good quality sleep and then on the other hand, you want to make sure that you're not suffering from a uh, common sleep disorder, which there are so many of them, like obstructive sleep apnea. That's the one I know. What are, are yeah. there, there's others? Many, many. Many. Yeah. But obstructive sleep apnea is so prevalent. Let's just stick with that for a second. Yeah. So, okay. To keep a brain healthy, you want to be growing new brain cells and uh, let me back up for a second there so and this is probably something that's fundamental i should have talked about at the beginning of all of this right so in our brains we always have new brain cells being born right even when we're 100 years old throughout our life we're always growing new brain cells 
those brain cells won't always survive and grow healthy synaptic connections with other cells and and survive to be part of the full network of cells that we need uh, to drive healthy functioning brain, right? Right. And then at the same time, we have cells that are dying off, right? So what we're trying to do, whether somebody has dementia or whether they just are trying to keep their brain healthy in the first place, we're trying to change that balance. We're trying to, to drive the equation towards more cells being born and surviving and growing robust, healthy connections and participating as part of a robust network and less cells dying off, right? Yeah, no, so you're, yeah, net, net, you're, yeah. you're coming out ahead. So that take, that's what all of these things I'm talking about are to drive that process. All so, the diet, sleep, exercise, yes. it's all aimed at that. Yeah, okay. because when you, when we talk about sleep apnea, if you are not getting good oxygen to your to oh. your brain cells at night, it is they're dying off. They need oxygen. Oh to so survive. when you should be regenerating, yeah, doing sleep being a regenerative activity, you're not right you're doing the opposite. Yeah, sleep. I, I I'm learning so much more about. I'm not an expert, but I think it's so fascinating what happens to our brains when we're sleeping, and what are why is it so beneficial to our brains yeah. i'm just sort of starting to understand this myself but one is that sleep is a time that our brains are able to clear toxins and debris i don't know why necessarily again i'm not a neuroscientist i'm not a though. sleep specialist but it seems to be that in sleep is a critical time for us to clear uh, uh, sort of debris and, and gunk, right? And uh, there was just a study that came out recently that didn't reveal anything new, but it was just another piece of evidence that showed the importance of sleep in this role. And that was that they took healthy middle-aged people and they deprived them of sleep for just one night. And then they looked and they did blood draws and showed that they had higher levels of beta amyloid, that protein that accumulates in Alzheimer's, right, circulating in the blood. That's So just one night of sleep deprivation, all of a sudden there was more of this potentially damaging compound circulating. So did they not, you know, were they not able to, to clear it? Were they producing more of it? There's a lot of uncertainty, but this is something that we know from animal models. This is something that we know that you need sleep to be able to clear out this bad stuff. You also need sleep to serve. There's uh, neural activity that needs to go through a daily pattern of excitation and relaxation. There needs a, to be a time for brain cells to to go into a different mode and to rest and recuperate. Oh, and it's great also, as I work with my patients, as we're, we're learning together about different ways to improve our sleep health. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, certain medications like sedative hypnotics, like Ambien, Lunesta, those kinds of things, they're really bad for our brain health. Why is that? You know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty there, but those medications are associated with cognitive decline. It's unclear why. 
we know that when you put the sleep electrodes on people's brains, you're not actually getting that good restorative sleep. So, you're right? not so there's the... different waveforms yeah, sure, sure. that the brain has, and you're not getting the right good restorative sleep pattern. So this is maybe not us. real sleep. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, we don't know how we would call it. Somebody knows. I'm not an sure, expert, but, but that's fascinating. But it's definitely not the quality of sleep that you want right. to be able. So, to, what are you telling yeah. people? Oh, what are you working on together? I yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so the the other thing, and we're we're going through our kind of list of things, but uh, this gets close to the next category of fundamentals of brain health, and that is um, meditative mindfulness self care practices. So typically our conversations around sleep uh, go hand in hand with a broader conversation about self-care. And then again, this is an area where I'm learning with my patients in terms of, and it's fascinating uh, to understand at a deep, you know, biologic level, physiologic level, the impacts of meditation on our brains and the benefits of meditation for brain health. This is another so, like ultimate brain hack. It, it just, it's unbelievable. It's the fact that it's been demonstrated in so many ways the, that it's actually having an impact. And this is the same thing that fascinates me about diet, it, this epigenetic impact, that it actually is changing the expression of our genetic code, right? So that's unbelievable. Or it's impacting our DNA, like our telomere length. Yes, I've heard. I was going to ask you about telomeres. Yeah. So, and those are critical in terms yeah. of like, those are- The longer, the better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we make them longer through yeah. things like exercise. Yeah, and meditation. And meditation. Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so typically, you know, our sleep conversations are around one, you know, making sure that you don't have some kind of sleep disorder and getting checked out, getting sleep studies. Two, working on sleep hygiene, and then typically sleep hygiene uh, ends up- being very much connected with these uh, contemplative practices, mindfulness, et cetera, meditation. And then it gets into a more nuanced discussion of, is it trouble falling asleep? Is it trouble staying asleep? Um, you know, which will lead to discussions of how to address that. And then some herbal, we'll look at some herbal components, everything from on the one hand, um, just, uh, you know, use of lavender oil, diffusing lavender oil, putting a little lavender oil on the feet or on the pillow. Uh, I mean, it just had, can have an amazing Yeah, impact. my wife is a big fan of that. Absolutely. Yeah, see, she knows. Yeah. And then, and then to the, I think for people who are having, you know, severe insomnia, something that we'll explore that's much, there's much more uncertainty and we don't know the, the, near or long-term effects, but something we look at would be maybe cannabis mm -hmm. uh, as something that can be a sleep aid as well. So, And that's a wide open... Whole nother conversation. There's, there's studies. Yeah. There's studies, yeah. I assume, that are being done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And again, we could have a whole nother conversation about this, but the, you know, when I, well, well, in terms of cannabis, the, the potential impact and the data that we already have in terms of applications uh, beneficial uses for older populations are really striking. And when you look at the legalization of cannabis and everything, 
there's a lot to consider in terms of the potential dangers for for the developing brain, for for kids, for teenagers, right? I mean, big societal questions. But in terms of a place that cannabis can have a huge role, and in terms of the symptoms that it's best geared at treating, are common concerns and complaints of older people. Yes. So that's something we could have a whole nother conversation CBD about. And CBD and THC yeah. and potential therapeutic uses for geriatric we'll, populations. We'll get that one next time, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So we got good primary care, diet, exercise, sleep. That led into a little bit of contemplate, com- contemplative practices and whatnot. And then there's my favorite category of brain health. That's kind of the pillars of health. I call it the pillars plus. Okay. So this is the stuff that just blows my mind too, that this works, right? But, and it's kind of intuitive in a way, but there's, there are these other pillars plus like social connection, creative expression, sense of purpose, and perception of aging. Oh, interesting. That have huge impacts on our aging period, but in particular impacts on our brain health. So a big stat going around these days, and I can go into the research of how this came to be, is that you know loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Really? And as it turns out, social isolation and loneliness, now a lot of times the studies, they're just associations, whatnot, but there are major associations between loneliness, which is a feeling, and social isolation, which is more a a predicament, a situation, it's more objective. You, You can count up how many social interactions you have. But loneliness and social isolation are strongly associated with cognitive decline, right? So on, saying it the other way, maintaining healthy social relationships and feeling a strong sense of connection to others, feeling that you have people that you can rely on uh, that, that, or that you can, you know, um, uh, that you can talk to, that you could... Uh, share something with that is a very important component of maintaining good brain health absolutely so it's unbelievable and then when you start thinking about okay coming back to the dance oh great so now you're out there you're connecting you're 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 expressing right so that's that's social connection yeah huge and we find a lot of people a lot of my patients that they're just getting more and more isolated, feeling more and more lonely. Uh, we have a very age segregated society uh, where a lot of older people then don't have connections with younger people, right? So that that and it can be part of a sort of vicious decline. There's something that's closely associated with that that's also a zinger fundamental for brain health that I should have mentioned in the pillars. But uh, you want to really make sure that you're doing everything to maintain your sensory inputs. So hearing loss. Hearing loss is really dangerous, negative for brain health. 
it's just hard when yeah. conversations are going on around you. You don't feel like no. you're part of the mix. You're missing things that are going on. So that social connection piece is really important. Then within that, with social connection, there's sort of this social connection bonus thing of intergenerational connection. So that's another thing that's just sort of intuitive, but it's also just shocking how powerful the research, the research and the evidence is that having robust connections across generations, older people and younger people doing meaningful things together has tremendous benefits that's, to our health and that's well-being. That's been tested. Yeah, absolutely. Really? There is compelling evidence that that is beneficial uh, and uh, it's good for our general health and well-being and specifically good for brain health. That's so again, you know, yeah. getting involved in a program where you're volunteering and it's, you know, helping kids and things like that, it's, it's unbelievable that this stuff really is what works. So you've got social connection, creative expression. So... I think, again, this is becoming, thankfully, kind of common knowledge and, and it's intuitive, but I don't think we appreciate the degree to which something like music, how potentially therapeutic and beneficial music is for our brains and for our brain health. So You mean to make music or to... Both. Both. Make so, and listen yeah, to so, it. So the, I put the, the whole... I was using music as an example in this whole kind of creative expression creative experience category so making art and appreciating art uh you know i i remember this program where they had uh oppor an opportunity for people with cognitive impairment and dementia even uh to participate in docent tours at the museum and uh seeing patients that i know uh are so impaired, you know, with really um, barely able to produce language, right? Sit and interact with the paintings and discuss the paintings and then all of a sudden talking about, you know, poignant things. I mean, it was, it's like an awakening type thing. I've seen that with people just appreciating art. Mm. I've seen that with people making art, whether it's painting or drawing. I've seen that with people listening to music, where again, there are these sort of awakening moments and there's some great films we could point uh, viewers or listeners to on that. So this is true art therapy. Oh yeah, uh, music yeah, therapy, yeah. which again, we're like, they're, they're like geriatricians, very few music therapists, God. very few music therapists. That's a music therapy, it's like if I were on a desert island and I could only bring one medicine, you know, I'd want uh, green leafy vegetables and music therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, art therapy, music therapy. And again, what's, what's unfortunate is when you look at a lot of senior service programs, whether it's in institutions like nursing homes or whether out in the community at senior centers, a lot of times, you know, what's passed off as art therapy is sort of, you know, mm. safety scissors, kind of dumbed down, kindergarten type thing. But when you see somebody who's actually trained and experienced and putting thought into teaching and guiding older people, including people, older people with dementia or cognitive impairment, 
through uh, the process of making art, it's really something to behold. And it's unbelievable to see the immediate and lasting therapeutic impact of that type of, of approach. Fascinating. So again, having a life that is exposed, if you're trying to keep your brain healthy, something where you're exposing yourself to the arts, whether it's music, painting, photography, sculpture, uh, dance, poetry, you know, uh, literature, all this stuff. It's really so exposing ourselves to it and then making it, yeah. you know, actually. And it's amazing when you find people who are at this fork in the road, maybe they've retired and people can, that can be a real danger spot where people can yeah, decline, lose sort of a and... sense of purpose. And then you find people who, uh, who, who see it as a period of renewment and take on, you know, all sorts of new things that maybe they'd always wanted to try and reinvent themselves and start making movies and or start painting or start writing poetry or continue and work on those things. And it's just unbelievable to see that okay. fork in the road and the potential of that approach. So, you know, social connection, creative expression. And then we talked to, within all of this about the power of having a sense of purpose. So just simply having a feeling that, you know, a reason to wake up in the morning and a reason that I'm here, you know, uh, and especially when that reason is connected to something that is related to how I am hopefully positively impacting this world so that it may in some small way be better, that I may be leaving it better than I found it. You know, I think that a lot of this comes from having some comfort with our own mortality and understanding that we will not always be here, understanding the small role we play in a greater interconnected network. And when people sort of are at peace with that and are driven by some strong sense that there's something that they can and must do to be able to really be fulfilling their best life and to be supporting others in a way. That is not only a great way to live, it turns out that's great medicine. It ends up that you can look at people's immune systems and when they have that sense of purpose, their immune systems are functioning better. Wow. They have more markers in their blood of the of a, of a effective, highly functioning immune system. Uh, you can look at uh, people's blood pressure tends to be better lower when they have lower, better controlled when they have that. People's blood sugars, whatever, all these kind of proxy markers that we look at just to figure out because there's that association. The association we know is there. You look at big populations like, oh, wow, there's this strong association. The people with a strong sense of purpose are living longer. Oh, well, yeah. It's, uh, the, yeah. Yeah. They, they're, they're not developing dementia as much. And then you go, oh, well, that's just chicken and egg. You know, that's just because they don't have a strong sense of purpose. They're not smoking, you know, and because we didn't get into that basic thing about smoking, right? Well, there's that's, certain yeah, things that's out, right? Basics. Yeah. So, but... 
all that washes away and it's a strong association that survives on its own. And then scientists try and figure out, well, why? What is it doing? What's the pathway? And the more we dig into it, the more we find all of these mediating factors that are positively impacted by this approach. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned one, maybe the last thing we should yeah. talk about is um, perception of age. Uh, Was that the last one? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. I love this one. This one sort of continually blows my mind. But uh, there's there's a researcher, her name is Becca Levy out of Yale that is really, uh, her work has really opened my eyes uh, in this, this category, but there's a lot of work in this category. But so the idea that if we think of aging as decrepitude and decline and senility, and we just think of aging and all of its negative implications, that that has a negative impact on us. In fact, when you look at people's perception of aging over the life course, it seems that people have these long fixed beliefs of aging as just decline and loss that it can become somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course. Okay. As opposed to people who are thinking about aging in terms of the gains and the strengths. And, you know, with aging comes experience and wisdom. And, you know, as it turns out, actually, when you look across populations, older people tend to be more optimistic. Older people yeah. tend to be happier. There's a happiness curve. Yes. And it's sort of goes into a tailspin in midlife, you know, and people come out pretty happy on the other end, right? So our perception of aging uh, has an impact, direct impact in terms of how we're going to age in terms of our health. And again, mediating all those things like the immune system, like blood pressure, things that are going to help keep us healthy. And what's really fascinating about this is that this has been demonstrated in a variety of ways. One is just there's that association. You know, you look at a population of people, you survey, you go to a big group of older people, and oh my gosh, the people who kind of think, you know, more positively about aging uh, are doing better. And you'd say, oh, well, that's because they're doing better. That yeah, they're right. better. So you've got to tease that out, right? So no, there is that association there. And then it's been shown in a variety of other ways, even experimentally. So they've done experiments where they expose people to quick sub-perceptible sub, sub images. Uh, you know, they're showing them things and then they flash up on a screen very quickly an image of an older person bent over, hunching over a walker, you know, looking to, or then, they, or then they'll show another group of images where uh, it's a vibrant older person running along the beach or smiling or hugging their grandchild, something like that. And when people are exposed to the negative images, they do more poorly on cognitive and physical testing immediately following mm -hmm. that exposure. So all you have to do is bombard somebody with a negative image of aging and they're going to do more poorly. And that seems to be holding over time beyond just those experimental conditions. So when you think about a society that is constantly showing us these negative 
images of the old senile person, you know, in, in your sitcom or, you know, in advertising that's always trying to show us that youth is everything and old is, you know, to be avoided like the plague, you know. You ask people to raise their hand, who wants to get old? And people don't raise their hand. It's like, <laughs> okay, I want to live a full life. I would love to be at least 100 and, and being living in a full, engaged life. Um, but it's it, so in experimental conditions, in terms of associations, in terms of looking at people's brains through scans, whether it's MRIs, functional MRIs, and then looking at brains after people have passed away, it's very clear that maintaining positive perceptions of aging throughout the life course, and then really cultivating those when you're older helps us keep our brains healthy. Fantastic. Yeah. Those are all, fan those are great tips. Um, and this is these are wonderful steps that we can all take. Um, I really have found this just fascinating. And I really thank you for, for coming on today. And I can't wait to come have you come back and talk about six or seven different things that yeah we, we touched on here we packed a yeah, lot no, we, in. Gotta, we gotta break these out that would be great yeah yeah so uh dr kaiser thanks for joining us pleasure Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. My guest has been Dr. Scott Kaiser. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.